0: Alright, so second week in Jude. Hopefully you're picking up Bibles off the, the floor. Maybe open up your phone. It'd be helpful if you could follow along. There'll be some of the scriptures on the back here, but I think it helps to kind of see it in the in the in the page there. Uh, we said last week Jude is about fighting for the faith, contending for the faith, the truth, the essential truths of the gospel. And he's he's confronting some false teachers that are in the church that's receiving this letter. We don't know what this church is, but we know it's written to a particular church, and he's saying, I want you to contend for the faith, because these false teachers, they've slipped in unawares, and they are deconstructing um, the truth. And he calls them out not just for their false teaching, but their false practice as well. So what you just heard read in 3 and 4, which is what we talked about uh, last week, he says, I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there he is saying, fight for the faith. And then later in 4, he says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So there he's saying, see what they're doing. Their, their false belief is tied to false practice. So that's that's the general message of Jude. So if you if you get lost in the weeds here today, then at least you know this is what this book is about. But what we looked at last week, I think it, it begs a few questions, which Jude answers in this text that we are looking at, where we, we might ask ourselves, well, why are the false teachers doing this? Why are they teaching false doctrine? Why don't they just stick to the truth, what's been handed down from the apostles to this church? Why not just stick with the, with the truth? I think he answers that that question, and then we might ask ourselves, well, what's, what's really the big deal? I mean, to each his own, right? I mean, if you don't like exactly what the apostles, they delivered to you, why not tweak it a bit, kind of make it your own? What's the big deal? What's the worst that could happen, right? And so Jude answers that as well. So what's motivating these teachers, and then... What's the big deal? And he does this with a kind of shock and awe kind of technique. I don't know if you know that term. It's a military term of not just uh, beating your opponent in a military action, but you're going to scare them, right? You're going you're to use uh, the, the biggest things that you have to, to shock them and put them in awe of your military power. And so we see Jude kind of doing this spiritually from Old Testament allusions, so he's going he's to bring forth a whole bunch of Old Testament stuff that we we're pretty sure his readers knew exactly what he was talking about. It was almost like a drop-down menu when he says, the Rebellion of, of Korah, and the readers were like, oh yeah, Rebellion of Korah, drop-down menu. They knew it, right? Most of us in the room probably don't know that. What is the Rebellion of Korah? You're going to find out in a minute. Um, things like that, so a lot of Old Testament allusions, and then some extra biblical stuff, it's even hard for us to even know where it came from exactly. And so it's some religious writings in the day, uh, intertestamental period time when uh, the Jews were using some of these writings. And so they the readers would have been very familiar with them. We're not very familiar with them. So that's another piece of kind of trying to unravel what the meaning is. And then just some very vivid word pictures that he gives, some really powerful illustrations that some are probably from Scripture and then some his, his own Thinking imagination. So let's look at these texts and be thinking about um, why the, the teachers are doing this and what's the worst that could happen. So, v- verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, so that, that tells me that he thinks they know all this stuff he's about to say. Okay? Um, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, first story he brings up is the wilderness wanderings. So, story goes like this. God saves people out of Egypt with ten plagues. Uh, they go through the Red Sea. They're in the, the wilderness, and they've, they've been saved by grace, right? They didn't do anything to save themselves. They didn't do anything to help the ten plagues along. They didn't, they didn't even pick up a sword. They didn't, drop, you know, not, didn't shed a drop of blood. They did nothing. And God did everything, that's, that's grace. So they were saved by grace, and they're brought into the wilderness, and they're brought to the Jordan River, right on the, on the boundary of this promised land that God's saying, I'm going to give this to you. And so what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to, in light of what happened in the past, they're supposed to be, have, have faith and trust in God in the future, and they say, no way, we're not doing it. We're, we don't believe you, God, except for two families, so the families of Caleb and Joshua uh, both say, we're, we're, we're going to trust, we're going to believe, but for the rest of the nation of Israel, they say, no, I'm not going to believe. And so the result is, is they are judged for their sin, and their sin is the sin of unbelief. And the judgment is they wander around in the desert for 40 years till they all drop dead, and then their kids have the opportunity to trust and believe, and then they go into the promised land. So n- notice that... Um, they, he says, Jesus saved them out of Egypt. That, that's an important little piece. I don't want us to miss that. Now, remember we said that Jude is Jesus' biological brother. He's one of, one of his own brothers. And it's another way of him saying, hey, Jesus is not just some guy. He's not some teacher. Jesus is God. And and Jesus, God the Son, was working in concert with God the Father and God the Spirit in the rescue of God's people, even as far back as the rescue from Egypt and certainly was around before that. So, what's the, the problem with these false teachers, right? Well, one thing is their lack of belief. They lack belief. And this is really their worst problem. They could get this problem taken care of, all these other problems would fade away. And what's the worst that could happen? Judgment. That's the worst that could happen. Judgment from God for their lack of belief. It goes on to another story. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment for the great day. So here he's talking about some sort of an angelic fall. So this could be the kind of the first angelic fall where, where Satan and a portion of the heavenly host rebel against God and they're thrown out. They're kind of cast out of heaven and they're cast down to earth. Some commentary writers say, well, maybe it's some fall we don't know about. I'm not so sure how you argue that. But then many others say, well, it's... the it's, it's piggybacking on an interpretation of something that happened in Genesis six. So, what happens in Genesis six is that you have these kind of these superhumans called the Nephilim, and the way that they came about was these quote sons of God had sex with women in uh, Genesis six, and then their babies were these Nephilim. And so, the traditional Jewish interpretation, and many others today, would say that those sons of God are fallen angels. Is there a way to really know? Probably not. But the point is that this is probably what his, what Jude's readers were thinking. And so these fallen angels were the ones that were put in a gloomy dungeon. Um, Again, a a theme of judgment. You're going to see this over and over and over again. It's lots of judgment. So welcome. Glad you're here. If it's your first first Sunday, we don't always talk about judgment, but we do some Sundays because it's in the Bible, so just FYI. Um, John Calvin writes in his commentary that, that what Jude is doing, he's arguing from greater to lesser. So he's saying greater, these angels are doing something against God and they're being judged. Well, certainly if God would judge angels, he would... Judge those who are a little lower than the angels. The scripture says that's us, right? So he's arguing from this greater to lesser. And why are they being judged? Well, this time it's not about uh, unbelief. It, it, these angels certainly had plenty of data to believe in who God really was. But now this is being, this judgment is for refusal to submit to God's authority, right? He says that they would not stay in their own position of authority, their proper Uh, dwelling. And what's the worst that could happen? Judgment. And this time, it's not 40 years in the desert and death. It's eternal judgment. And there's no redemption plan for angels. Once judged, always judged. There's there's no redemption plan. Then he moves right into another judgment story, Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of a, a poster for God's judgment in the scriptures says Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire and here's why people think that the angel story is probably the Genesis 6 story because he says likewise indulged in sexual immorality so he's tying that angel story to some kind of a sexual immorality Uh, idea that is also inside the the Sodom and Gomorrah story. So many of you know the Sodom and Gomorrah story, Genesis 19. These two cities that were on the Canaanite plain, and God declares that uh, He's had enough of their sin. Their sin has reached this height that He's not going to take it anymore, and He's going to judge those cities. And He and Abraham have a kind of a back and forth. Well, what if you find this many righteous people? Will you still uh, judge the city? And and, uh, they go down, and these two angels are appearing as as men. Um, they're taken in by Lot, which is Abraham's nephew, uh, for the night. Nightfall comes, and the entire population of men, both young and old, is what the text says. They show up, and they want to gang rape the angels. Okay, so so this is an indicator that they are not following the ways of God, right? Things have reached a height that. Is, is, is a point where God's like, no more, we're not doing this anymore, we're going to bring judgment, although it's, it's measured judgment, because the whole Canaanite plain is not taken out, merely these two cities. So, so Lot and his family are told to leave, and both cities are completely torched by God. And what's the point? They're receiving judgment, but why are they receiving judgment? It's not lack of faith, although they certainly lack faith. It's not lack of respect for God's authority, although they certainly lack God's authority. But it's for indulging in sexual immorality and unnatural desire. So now we have another piece of the puzzle regarding why these false teachers are doing what they're doing. And he's saying it's because uh, they, they are not wanting to submit to God's authority. They are... Uh, but also that it involves sexual immorality. They want to compromise the biblical understanding of sex. Uh, the biblical understanding of sex is, and you, 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 know, you open up the opening chapters of, of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, is that gender and marriage and sex equal procreation. This is the biblical design. This is what God has come up with. And it's come up with pre-fall. Like, this is not after the fall of human beings. This is in the created order, where you have male and female, and those, those two. And, and Jesus, he reverberates this in Matthew 19, says the same thing. He, he talks about Genesis 1 and 2. So this, 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 this pattern of male and female gender, getting married, having sex, and having babies. This is biblical sexuality. Anything outside of that biblical pattern is what Jude actually, what's, what's translated unnatural desire, that literally is strange flesh. So instead of one flesh, which is what we read about in Genesis 2, which would be the gender, marriage, sex, babies, uh, is strange flesh. So strange flesh is taking that sex act and taking it outside of that biblical pattern in any way whether that be heterosexual, whether that be homosexual, right? And so these false teachers are compromising the gospel in in some way because they want to compromise the biblical design for sexuality. That doesn't mean, again, that sexuality is not for fun and for intimacy, but it is not merely for recreation. And really, since the pill... Sex in our culture has been thought of as merely recreational. That like the the goal is like don't have a baby. (laughs) And the biblical design is gender, marriage, sex, babies. Right? And so Jude is saying they're trying to step outside of that design. And and stepping outside of that design is always coupled with the unraveling of the gospel. Always. And, and oftentimes, unraveling the gospel or unraveling the belief in the inspiration and authority of Scripture is somehow often, often tied, not always, but often tied to sexuality, that we, that we want to compromise in that area. And so because we want to compromise in that area, we want to unravel the Bible, we want to unravel the gospel. And you are unraveling the gospel when you unravel sexuality, because sexuality itself is preaching the gospel. Right you go back to Ephesians 5 and you see Paul saying husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church saying saying wives submit to husbands what is this why why would we have this it's because it is preaching the gospel it's showing Christ in the church when we step outside of that design we're, we're no longer preaching the gospel with that biblical design so Judas is telling us that these teachers are doing what they're doing because they're not believing, right? They're not believing. They're lack, they lack belief. They're not submitting to God's authority. And they're compromising the biblical design for sexuality. Uh, this is all over the place in the, the church world right now, is it not? I mean, this is a big conversation inside the church. Is, is Are we going to go outside of the biblical design for sexuality. It was interesting. I I was listening to a sermon from one of the churches downtown. They will remain nameless. But I open up their website, and I I see this sermon from last week. It's it's called The Message. And I was like, awesome, perfect. I'm going to listen to this, and I'm going to hear what they think is The Message. So preacher gets down to the end, punchline, Even uses the word saved, says you can be saved. And how can you be saved? By receiving help from those who are not like you. That was the punchline. And then did finally get to asking help from God. And I kept waiting. Could could the name of Jesus even be mentioned in this sermon? It wasn't. It was never mentioned in the message. This church is also affirming the the sexual expressions outside of the biblical design for marriage. It goes hand in hand, unraveling the gospel, also unraveling the practice of the gospel. This is a a paragraph on their mission statement. It says, We are cradle-congregationalists, mystics, activists, recovering fundamentalists, Sure, that they would put me in that category. Former Roman Catholics, evangelicals, Buddhists, agnostics. Rather than endorsing a single creed, we covenant to respect and to care for each other. Basically, saying we don't believe the gospel anymore. You don't have to believe a creed, you don't have to believe essential truth claims anymore. You can just come in and we'll just be nice to each other and it'll be great, right? That's not the church. That's not the church. I don't think they read Jude. Or they did, and they just didn't like it, and they don't want to follow it, right? There is a faith, and that faith is connected to a practice. And these things are laid out in the Scriptures. But what's the worst that could happen, right? Judgment. Judgment. That's what's at stake. If you don't get the faith right... At least the essential truth claims. There's always going to be secondary issues that we kind of squabble about. and But if we don't get the faith, right, salvation through Christ, if we don't get that, then we can expect judgment. Now, Jude makes a comment after he's kind of thrown out these three examples. Like a good preacher, you know, he makes, makes some, some comments on what he's just said. Verse 8, yet in like manner... These people, so he's talking about the false teachers again, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So he just kind of like boom, boom, boom. Here's some comments. And so he says they're relying on dreams. I think this is interesting. Because if, if you don't submit to the authority of Scripture, then what authority do you appeal to? If you've said, okay, the Bible's not true, can't trust it, What do you appeal to? Well, evidently, these folks, these false teachers, are appealing to dreams. Now, there's nothing wrong with dreams. God still speaks through dreams, but they are not to be relied on, right? God's Word, Scripture, that's to be relied on. Any kind of dream that is had has to be vetted by Scripture. So again, I'm not throwing out all supernatural means of ways that God speaks to people, but that's what these folks are doing. They're saying, Well, I had a dream last night, and this is what God said, not what this crazy apostolic essential truth stuff says. Right? And this is this is one of the ways you can kind of discern a false teacher. Is that they're deconstructing the Bible and they're puffing up their reliance on extra biblical guidance. Um, he, he says that they're defiling the flesh. This is another. Allusion to sexual sin. Right? He's, he's talking about sexual immorality. And one of, one of the things about sex, and, and Apostle Paul says this too, uh, 1 Corinthians, he's, he says, You're sinning against your own body. So there's something unique about s- sexual sin that it defiles you, it makes you unclean, it makes the person unclean that you're doing this with. And, and partly because it involves your body, it involves your mind, it involves your soul. Right? It's very intimate. Again, does that mean it's outside of the grace of God? No. It can, it can be forgiven. It can be transformed. Absolutely. But he's letting the letting the, the reader know, this is serious. This, this sin is serious, and it causes some serious consequences. Uh, he says they're rejecting authority. So he's already mentioned that. In his example with the angels, and he's just reiterating that. And then he says, blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, Probably talking about angels, not exactly sure what he means when he's saying that. Uh, But then he rolls into a story about angels. So verse 9 says, But when the archangel Michael, contending when the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they are, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Um, he's talking about some kind of extra-biblical source. Uh, we, we don't know exactly where it is. Uh, we don't have it. We don't have the text. There's a book that we have a partial text of called The Assumption of Moses that Is like in the intertestamental period, but we don't have all of it, and so this story's not even in that, but they think, well, maybe it was in there. It doesn't really matter, because he's using it in an illustrative way. So what is he he illustrating? He's illustrating that Michael, the the archangel, who is a glorious being, and a very powerful being, he knows his place. He knows his place. He knows his place under the good authority of God, and so... In this story, whether it's true or not, who knows? He's fighting with Satan over the the body of Moses. And instead of saying, I, Archangel Michael, rebuke you, he says, the Lord rebuke you, which is actually from the word of God, from Zechariah. And so he's he's saying, Michael knows his place, but these false teachers don't. They're declaring themselves over the word of God, over the authority of God of God, which does this weird kind of turning of the tables. It then causes them to act like unreasoning animals. This is, what, this is an irony, right? When you put yourself over and above God, you then serve your desires, which is what animals do, right? They just go with whatever is instinctual. Whatever feels good, that's what animals do. And so we, we think we're putting ourselves above God, but in fact, we are digressing into being like animals. Um, he, he uses more Old Testament imagery. He says, Woe to them, which is like judgment to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So throwing lots of Old Testament at the, at the reader. Um, way, the way of Cain. So Cain and Abel, maybe you know that story from Genesis, where Cain and Abel are both presenting a sacrifice. And Abel is doing it the way that God has asked him to do it. Cain is doing it on his own terms. Right? So he's practicing practicing worship in a way that is over and against God. And then God calls him out on it. And then Abel gets mad. Or Cain gets mad. And Cain kills his brother, Abel. And Cain's line becomes a whole group of people that live apart from God, live out from the the authority of God. And so he just kind of sums that whole story idea up in the way of Cain. These false teachers are living according to the way of Cain. They're they're, they're out from under the authority of God. And then he says, for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Uh, This is from Numbers 22. Uh, This king named Balak wants to curse the nation of Israel. Um, He's afraid of the nation of Israel. He thinks they're going to come take his land. And he finds a Israelite prophet, Balaam, and he's like, "Hey, would you curse Israel? And I'll pay you a lot of money." And Balaam's like, "Sure, I'd like a lot of money." And so he he starts going towards Israel to to curse them, and God stops him and says, "No, you bless Israel." And he's like, "Yes, sir, I will do it." So he he blesses Israel, and he goes back to Balak. I'm sorry, I didn't. You know, God made me bless Israel. And he's like, no, no, you're supposed to curse them. I have more money. And Balaam's like, sure. I mean, I could use some more money. So he goes again to curse Israel. This time he's on a donkey. The donkey won't go. The donkey just kind of stubbornly stops. And eventually the donkey talks to Balaam. And then an angel appears, and he goes, oh, the, the donkey sees the angel, and I didn't see the angel, and I, I totally get it. And so he gets rebuked by a donkey and by an angel. And he says, no, I'm not going to curse Israel. And he goes back to Balak, and Balak's like, I got more money. And he's like, sure, I could use more money. He does it again, right? And so it, it's this uh, picture of someone who is a leader, a teacher in the nation of Israel, who is doing something falsely because he wants money. And this is, again, he's pointing to these false teachers. You see, these false teachers are doing what they're doing, in part because of gain. They're getting gain. Now, what is that gain? Don't know. Maybe it's financial since Balaam's was financial. We don't know for sure. Probably, probably something financial. And, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, tweaking the gospel and get doing it for money, well, Korah's rebellion um, kind of gives an illustration of what could happen, number 16. Uh, there's a big controversy over who can be priests. So, the the, the, the the tribe of Levi, every male in the tribe of Levi is given the job to take care of the tabernacle and later the temple so the people of God can come and they can worship there. Um, the, 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 the The people that are in the line of Aaron, who is in the tribe of Levi. They can be the priests, but no one else. Everyone else is support staff. And so one day, Korah decides, I want my sons and my family, I want them to be priests too. And so he goes to Moses and he protests. And he's like, I don't like it that Aaron and his sons are the priests and my sons are not the priests. I want to be the priests. And Moses says, okay, well, let's find out what God thinks. And so let's all get together tomorrow, and let's ask God what he thinks. And so Korah, he brings his immediate family, but also like 250 uh, of these men who want, want to be priests. And they've all got their little incense burning sensor, and they're like, woohoo, let's do it, we're going to be priests. And Moses says, okay, Korah and your immediate family, you just stand out in front of your tent right there. And the rest of you 250, you stand over here with your little incense sensors, and we're going to ask the Lord what he thinks. Lord, what do you think about this whole thing? And the ground opens up and swallows Korah and his family. And then God incinerates the 250 that had the burning censers. That was the end of the Korah rebellion. What's the worst that could happen? Judgment. Judgment. It is a serious, sober passage. Jude is pulling no punches, not one. It is, it is like wave after wave after wave of warning of what could happen if you turn away from the one true God. And he's implying that it is actually more serious to turn away from the ultimate revealing of the one true God, which is Jesus. This makes Sodom and Gomorrah look like Nothing. Quorum Rebellion, like nothing, like re- rejecting God's own Son who came in the flesh and revealed himself for the salvation of sinful humanity. He pulls out some, some images, and again, he just kinda, this is kind of just washing over the reader. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So this love feast or agape feast was probably something that the, the early church uh, did every week, I and mean, it, it is what it sounds like. I get together and eat a meal together, probably take communion as part of it. And so these false teachers are slipping in, and they're a part of the love feast. And they're not—they're not afraid. They're not afraid that anybody's going to confront them or talk to them about their false teaching. They're feeling pretty relaxed. They bring a little extra food for other people. They're really nice. And Jude says, these are like reefs, right? A reef is like just barely under the water. And you're in your ship, and you cannot see it until it's too late. And then you run aground on that reef, and you are shipwrecked. And he's saying, this is what these false teachers are like. You think you're just on a little pleasure cruise. You're just cruising along, and you've got false teaching just under the surface in your church, and, and you're going to plow into that, and you're going to shipwreck the faith. You're going to shipwreck your church. These shepherds are feeding themselves. Shepherds are not supposed to eat sheep. They're supposed to lead the sheep. They're supposed to feed the sheep. Yes, they use their wool, but they they don't eat them. It's, It's kind of a stupid proposition, right? You're like, I've got this sheep that'll produce wool year after year after year. If I eat them, they cannot produce wool year after year after year. So you keep them around. You keep them healthy, right? And he says, these sheep are are pretending that they're leaders and feeders, but they're not. They're eaters. They're going to eat the flock, right? They they are looking for their own gain. They do not care about the people of God. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds, right? These these people are, nope, they're they're, they're all talk and no action. So when we see a cloud, we're like, oh no, a cloud. I really want some sun. Um, But not when you're in an arid climate. When you're in an arid climate, you see a cloud and you're like, oh, it's going to rain. Oh God, thank you so much. Come come, cloud, please come. Oh, and then it just kind of blows away. You're like, oh, it's a waterless cloud. Right? It doesn't bring life. It, do, it doesn't bring forth any, any kind of good. And he's saying, this is what these false teachers are like. They over promise, they under deliver. They're all talk. And there is no fruit that comes out of their uh, their lives. Uh, he then uses the image of fruit right it says they're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Um, so the twice dead tree. so the first death is that they don't bear fruit. and a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit might as well be dead. So it's already it's dead pra- practically speaking. But then there's a second death, and the second death is the fruit tree hasn't borne any fruit. You pull it out by its roots, and you destroy it. And so now not only is he pointing to the lack of fruit bearing that's in the life of the false teacher and those that follow that teaching, but he's pointing to judgment. He's saying that false teaching is going to lead to judgment because you're believing wrongly. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own Shame. Similar kind of imagery here, this wild foam-producing wave that, that can produce nothing except foam. Maybe you've, you've been at the beach and you've seen kind of some, some uh, little yucky areas where the, 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 the waves have just created this nasty-looking foam, and you're like, oh, I wish I could swim there, but I'm not going to swim there, right? And, and so he's like, this is what these people are producing, Right? They, they they look like a big powerful wave, but what they result in is this foam, and the foam that he what he ties to that foam is shame. And so he's saying, what you're gonna get out of following this teaching is you're gonna feel shame. You're gonna be shameful because you're not following the word of God. One more image, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So stars that are wandering around the sky, I I think he's probably talking about shooting stars. And so he's saying, he sees that and he's like, look at that star, it won't stay where it's supposed to stay. It's not staying in the order of the cosmos that God set up. It's it's moving and then goes dark. It goes dark. So use that as an illustration to say, this is what these false teachers are. They're just a flash, and then they're gone. If you want to make an eternal impact, then believe in the truth of the gospel, the truth that was handed down by the apostles once for all delivered, the faith, not not some faith of your own making, because you're just going to be like this wandering star that goes into darkness. Then kind of the big finish, right? This big summary statement. He uses this uh, quote from uh, probably First Enoch. Again, this is another extra-biblical source that the Jewish readers would have known about. Um, It says, it, "...it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones," that's angels, "...to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness," That they have committed in such an ungodly way. You see a word that's repeating there. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So, uses another extra biblical uh, quotation. Why does he do that? What does that mean? I don't know. But, what is it illustrating? Uh, it's illustrating that the ungodly are judged, right? He uses ungodly or godliness multiple times in that, and and, and it's just his way of kind of summarizing what he said about 10 times already, is that those who think they can play fast and loose with gospel truth are gonna be judged. And there's no way around it. There's no way to get away from that reality. And so... um, there's, a, there's some threads here that, that keep kind of bubbling up. So here, here are the threads as, as I see them. Um, what are the motivations of these false teachers? There's four of them, and we'll get to, to the fourth, but the first three are power, sex, and money. Power, sex, and money. I mean, every pastor, big-name speaker you've seen go down the tubes, it's, it's usually power, sex, or money. And so these false teachers are being motivated by these things. So power... Uh, He talks about the angelic fall, Korah's rebellion. He says they reject authority. He says they rely on dreams. All that's about power, that they are putting themselves over and against God and his word. Uh, It's about sex, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, he says they defile the flesh, they indulge in sexual immorality and unnatural desires. That theme just kept coming back up again and again. It's even in the earlier part of the book as well. Money talks about Balaam's error. For gain, it talks about shepherds feeding themselves. In this last portion I just read, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so these, these these things that are driving these false teachers, right? And that answers the question why wouldn't you just stick with the gospel? Well, power, sex, money. You you you're trying to get these things. You are worshiping these things, you're valuing these things over and above God and his glory. So what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, obviously, judgment, uh, but I think there's two things that he's getting at here. One is a lack of effectiveness, a lack of fruitfulness, we might say. So that's what he's communicating in the waterless clouds, the chaotic foamy waves, the twice-dead tree, that the first, the first death would be fruitlessness. And It is interesting that the churches that are compromising on the gospel in North America are declining rapidly. About 20 years ago, a bishop from the Episcopal Church named Shelby Spong wrote this uh, book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And in the book, he said, Christians have got to quit looking at the Bible literally. They've got to look at it more mystically. They've got to figure out what's really behind the words, like this whole like take it for what it really says, like we've got to get over that. And if we don't get over that, our churches are going to die. And a lot of churches bought that many of them in what we might call the mainline church category. And what we know that over the last 20 years, the rate of decline in mainline churches is now at a rate of 1 million people a year that are leaving those churches. And those churches took Shelby Spong's advice. And they deconstructed the gospel and no longer preached Christ. Uh, there's some interesting uh, research that's been done by David Haskell. He's a professor in, in Canada at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. He did this back in, in uh, 2016. And they looked at different churches in Canada. So Canada usually like about 10, 20 years ahead in terms of trends. So I think it's kind of interesting to look at, at them and what they're experiencing. And, and so he would talk to growing churches, people in those, and clergy in those, and then he would talk to declining churches. And he would ask them statements. And this one statement he asked, he said, Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead with a real flesh and blood body leaving behind an empty tomb? And so 93% of the pastors in those growing churches says, Absolutely, yes, I believe in resurrection. And 83% of the worshipers said, Yes, believe in that. While those in declining churches are saying, uh, 56% of the clergy in those declining churches said, I believe in the resurrection. So just a little over half, still believing in a bodily resurrection. While 67% of the worshippers said we believe in the resurrection. I think what you see in a lot of those churches is you see you have a false teacher, as a pastor, and you still have people in the pews that still believe in the true gospel. Another thing that he asked them was, do you believe that God performs miracles in answer to prayers? So in the growing churches, 100% of the pastors said, yes, I believe that. (laughs) And 90% 90% of the worshipers in growing churches said, yes, I believe that. While 44% of pastors in declining churches said, I believe that God actually answers prayer. While, again, 67% of those in the pews in those declining churches agreed that God answers prayers. Um, again, what you see in that is you've got a false teacher as a pastor who is deconstructing the gospel and people in the, some people in the pew who actually believe in the gospel. We've had some interesting conversations with some folks from churches downtown in, in Amherst, the one that I was speaking of earlier. Uh, we've had some, some, some interesting conversations where, you know, we came to start a church from scratch. Like, how do you start a church from scratch when churches are declining? And so people would ask us about that. And then when the church started to grow, it started to grow with a lot of younger people. And they would say, who's coming to your church? You, you, you started a church from scratch? Who comes to your church? Because our church is declining. And we'd say, well, it's actually younger people. <gasps> really? How did you do that? I'm serious. I'm not over-exaggerating. And I'd say, well, th- then they would always follow up, and they would say, is it because you have great music, and you, f- and you feed them? Is that why they come? Because that's what we've been talking about in our committee meeting. you know?" And, and it's like, well, I think we do have great music, and we do feed them, but we preach the, the gospel. We preach the Bible. We preach it as true. And, and, and it's sort of like the scratching of their head, you know, like, really? You know, like, thanks, but no thanks? Like, it, it's very it, it's very counterintuitive because you think in, in a crazy culture as we have, that you could grow by compromising. And sometimes, in some settings, compromising grows, you know, numerical growth. But overall, that is not what's happening. What's happening in North America, at least, is that those willing to preach the gospel and stick to the biblical text are seeing growth, because there's power in that. God blesses that, Now is it possible for a church that's sticking to the gospel and sticking to the Bible not grow? Absolutely. There's churches that are de- declining that are in that, and there's other reasons and other uh, dynamics around that that certainly are beyond the scope of this sermon. So what do we what do, we do with, with that, right? Um, again, I, we, we've got to take it seriously, because not only will a Christian and a church become ineffective, but eventually they will be judged, And this is what Jude is getting at. He's trying to sober up his uh, readers and saying, this is so serious. In fact, rejecting Jesus is more serious than anything else that he's mentioned because you're rejecting the very Son of God. Now, I think it's easy in this kind of sermon, you go, well, I'm not a false teacher, so got this one down. I'm set, right? But I, I think we need to be careful about doing that. Because those churches that are in decline, who've rejected the gospel, they didn't always not believe the gospel. There was a day when they actually believed the gospel. And then there was a day when they compromised. Now, how did that happen? Hard, hard to know exactly. But in, in part, I think, as we read Jude, is it had something to do with unbelief and money, sex, and power. And there was a temptation in those areas to compromise, and because they wanted to compromise in those areas, they compromised the gospel itself, and they they, they unraveled the gospel. So are are any of us here, are we tempted by money? Yes. (laughs) I mean, every time we're not generous, when we theoretically are like, the gospel shows God's generosity, and I too should be generous, but we're not generous to our church or otherwise. We're succumbing to the temptation of money, right? So we, we have the seed of that sin in our hearts. Right? Are, 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 are we tempted by uh, power, right? Absolutely. Every time we don't obey the Scripture, we don't know our place. We're not submitting to the authority of God because the way that He brings forth His authority is through His Word. And when we don't obey His Word we're saying, I know better, God. I put myself over and against you, which also causes us to act instinctually like animals. We do that, right? We are tempted to do that. And are we tempted in the area of sexuality? Absolutely. Perhaps in our own sexuality, as we're tempted to step outside of God's design for biblical sexuality and to To engage in strange flesh, right? But 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 also when we are not willing to have a hard conversation with our fellow Christian brother or sister who's saying, I'm gonna step outside of the biblical pattern. And you're like, oh, I just don't wanna have that conversation. And what's the worst that could happen? Right? What are we doing? We're compromising. Now again, these things. The truth needs to be displayed with love and compassion, absolutely, but truth is truth. And so we, we have the seeds of all those things inside of us, right? Uh, Robert McShaney, he, he, Murray McShane, he says, uh, he says that uh, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. That is absolutely true. Any time when we look at a sinner who's doing something, and we go, how could they? Just check yourself. Just check yourself. And remind yourself of that the seed of that is in my heart. And I have a whole other set of sin patterns that I am, am fighting against by God's grace. Right? But the root of all these things is unbelief. It, if, if we have genuine faith... And who God is and what he's done, then it will take care of these other things. When we are tempted with money, it's, it's because we don't believe God. He's not a good provider. He's not gonna take care of me. When we don't uh, we don't submit to his authority, we not we're saying, your authority's not good, God. I can't trust you. I gotta trust myself. Right? And when we're stepping outside of his Biblical Design for Sexuality. We're saying, you don't know what you're doing. When you created this whole gender, marriage, sex, baby thing, you you, you, you didn't know what you were doing. You need to get up with the times, God, 2019. No. No, why, why do we do that? Because we don't trust Him. We don't trust Him. And we're reminded at the front end of this text, I think this is so powerful, and I read it to you earlier in verse 5. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's letting us know that the the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. I think that verse alone kind of clears that up. Right? Some people are trying, trying to kind of create the God of wrath in the Old Testament. And then Jesus, he never, he never judges. What? Have you read Jude? Probably not. But he, look, listen to what he's saying. He's saying Jesus judges those that are not willing to believe, but he's also saving those who are willing to believe. He's a savior. And just as he rescued the people out of Egypt, He rescues human beings of all nations out of the slavery of sin and its effects, which is a whole lot worse than Egypt or Pharaoh or any of those things. And it's actually what Jesus was remembering with his disciples when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He was having a Passover Seder. They were all thinking about the Passover and how God had saved the people of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land. And in the middle of that Passover Seder, he takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know in that moment that what God did in Egypt typified what Jesus was going to do on a spiritual level through his death on the cross. That he was going to save us at the cross. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And again, they're, they're in a Passover Seder, remembering the Passover. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, I want you to remember me. That it was him back in the Old Testament, and it's him at the cross, saving individuals, but also drawing them into a new covenant community. A covenant community that rallies around the essential truth claims of the gospel, and they hold unswervingly to that gospel belief and that gospel practice, no matter what is going on in the world. And there's always been things that people are upset about that the church believes. There's never been a time when we've just been perfectly aligned. Never. We're always having to to believe and practice in ways that the world is, doesn't understand, doesn't like, gets upset with, miss you know, uh, misspeaks about in terms of what we're believing. This is part of the deal. Right? But we're doing this under the authority of a good a good God, a good God who with that authority has offered us salvation. So if you've come here this morning and you've you've never received that saving grace that that Christ offers through the cross, I want to encourage you to do that this morning, to receive that forgiveness, to receive that new life a new relationship with God. It is the only thing that will save you from judgment, and there is judgment And for those of us that we've we've accepted that gift of grace, the ongoing proof that we've accepted that gift of grace is that we are living that grace out. Not perfectly, but in an ever-increasing way of growing holiness. Again, that doesn't save us. That growing holiness doesn't save us. But it is proof that we have sincerely, genuinely received Christ by faith. And so we constantly need to be reminded that Due to the fact that the seeds of all human sin are in every one of our hearts, we needed grace not only to be saved initially, but we need grace every day, right, to not return to those desires, but instead to follow God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is what we were created to be in the first place. So as we take the bread and the cup, let's be reminded of His grace, His grace, His grace saving us is grace of ongoing transformation the grace we need to to, to say no to some of those seeds that are in us as, as fallen human beings and the grace to stand with love but with truth within our own church and as we interact with those in our world so let's pray God we in no way look at these false teachers that are being rebuked in Jude's letter and 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 put ourselves outside of those possibilities God Lord we know that it is by grace through faith we are saved nothing can give sight to our spiritually blind eyes except for you and so for those who have perhaps never experienced that I pray that they would that they receive your gospel grace and they'd be saved and transformed and given new life this morning. And that those of us that are walking this path by grace as your sons and daughters, Lord, that you would give us the grace to walk the path. Lord, it is an impossible path. But we cannot believe and practice in a way that is God-glorifying and good for us and for others without you maintaining us by grace. So, Lord, would you remind us of that? Would you transform us as we take this bread and this cup and we're reminded of the grace as we sing about the grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.